Hier komen wij in vreemd. listening to Red Flag Radio. My name is Ros Ward and I would like to acknowledge that we record this show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And that might be a particularly important feature today because it's relevant to the topic that we're discussing, which is the role of Aboriginal unionists in the 1890s Shearer's strikes. And it's a forgotten history that we are um, going to uncover here today with Jordan Humphreys excited about getting into the topic but it makes me think that there's a lot of hidden history of uh, the workers movement not just in Australia but internationally as well and to give another plug for the book that we launched in our previous podcast uh, written by Tom Bramble and Mick Armstrong and um, all of the details for that I've put again in the notes for this show Uh, so essential reading on revolutions in the 20th century so pick that up at Red Flag Books and you can support this podcast to reveal more of this forgotten history uh, at patreon.com forward slash Red Flag Radio podcast. So our special guest, first time on Red Flag Radio, Jordan, is a socialist based in Sydney, currently in lockdown and a regular contributor. If you read Red Flag, you'll see Jordan's name come up quite a bit and the same in the journal Marxist Left Review. And his most recent piece, which is just about to be published, I believe, uh, is on this topic that we're discussing today. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks for having me. So let's get into it then. I was just interested, first of all, about how you came across this history. And maybe it was Mick Armstrong, <laughs> to be fair, because <laughs> um, usually it is Mick who has this encyclopedic knowledge, one of the founding members of Socialist Alternative. But yeah, tell us the story. How, how did you um, get inspired to investigate this topic and write about it? Yeah, totally. Well, it flowed from an article I have in the current issue of the Marxist Left Review, actually, on settler colonialism and some of the debates around Aboriginal oppression today. And as a part of that, I was looking into some of the early history of the trade union movement and Aboriginal workers, and particularly the Shearer's Union, because there's been a bit written about that topic. And after finishing that article, I was still interested in the question and thought there was some unanswered kind of parts to it. So I thought I would look into the Shearer's Union newspapers at the time, and it was kind of helped because we're in lockdown, so (laughs) wasn't that much more you could do. Um, And a really good thing about it is that they've been um, uh, digitalised on Trove at the moment, so it's easy to kind of look through them and stuff. And I thought, all right, I'll have a look at these. Maybe there's a couple of references to it that have been overlooked. And the other part of it is indeed Mick Armstrong, who I was talking to about the previous article, and he was making a bunch of points about, you know, the role which they played in these early struggles, and there's more to be written about that. Um, And what I found was, like, a huge amount of material, way more than I thought I would. So to give you an idea, from 1890 to 1909, The Worker, which is one of the newspapers, published 357 articles that discussed Aboriginal people, And the Queensland-based worker published almost 600 articles in the same kind of period. So a huge amount of material. And just after a few hours, you know, of reading through these articles, it became clear that hundreds of Aboriginal shearers had been involved in the union and the strikes of the 1890s. 
Mm. Yeah. And shout out to the archivists who are making it easier for people to access this kind of information. That is, yeah, that's already quite incredible. So if we're talking about the strikes of um, the 1890s, uh, I guess probably lots of listeners are not particularly familiar with this period of, of history, like what were the conditions like for shearers, what were the political conditions, what was going on, kind of what was Australia like, I guess, at that in that period to give us a sense of, how important um, what we're going to be talking about it actually is. Yeah, definitely. Well, the strikes in the 1890s were uh, absolutely huge confrontations between capitalists and workers, and they're built upon a lot of growing grievances in society. Um, uh, like often, uh, both at the time and since then, people have thought, you know, Australia is this great working class paradise or whatever, but that was not the case. There was all sorts of exploitation and oppression, um, and that was particularly the case. In the shearing industry, it was not a glamorous job <laughs> in the late 1800s. Um, lots of workers would travel, like, all across the country, um, you know, from Queensland to, to New South Wales, to Victoria, to South Australia, even across to New Zealand, um, looking for work. And there were all sorts of problems with, like, uh, with a rate of pay, with like deductions, often the pastoralists would make deductions from workers' pay over all sorts of you know perceived um, you know injustices or whatever. Um, and there were problems like housing and sanitation with diseases. Like often the sheep would have all sorts of diseases or insects and ticks and stuff that would get onto the shearers, and there were constant disputes around these kind of things, which really laid the basis for you know the union campaigns that came in the 1880s. Yeah. And actually, this is a little personal anecdote, but when I was growing up in Somerset, um, basically sort of half on a farm that had sheep, we had shearers come every shearing season that would sort of do a tour of the area and they'd come down from Scotland and they'd go through all the counties until they got down to Somerset. And it was a father and son shearing team. And I remember the father basically could only stand at a kind of 90-degree angle. His back was so fucked from shearing his whole life. And I thought, oh, this seems like a really old man and he was 45 or something, you know, like the, the physical, I mean, and this is in the conditions of the late 20th century of doing it, so let alone the late 19th century mm. and the expectations of the volume of shearing that you're going to be doing in a certain amount of time, the number of hours you do and so on. So, yeah, like physically incredibly um, exhausting and damaging uh, labour. So it's understandable then, I guess, that the shearers formed unions, but now you might not think of it as a particularly, because of the um, kind of, it's not like giant workplaces of shearers, right? So how did the shearers' unions end up becoming what they were like and what were they like? Yeah, I think this is really interesting because it kind of relates to our debates today around like casual and precarious workers and stuff. Because if you looked at the shearing workforce in the 1880s, you wouldn't have necessarily thought, oh, this is going to be really easy to organize because um, there's thousands of people, you know, moving all across the country, you know, and in a very diverse range of circumstances. Like some might be like, you know, small farmers and stuff do a bit of shearing on the side in the areas around them. Others are more itinerant workers moving around. 
often they wouldn't work at the same shearing stations from year to year. So it's you know very hard to organise, you would presume. And you know many did not have contracts, worked on all sorts of casual bases, worked in other industries like mining and all sorts of odd jobs as well. They weren't necessarily shearers full-time. So huge workforce and very mobile. Um, yet they, they succeeded in organising these workers into you know, what was one of the most powerful unions um, throughout that period. And they used like a whole range of things. Like they had, uh, compared to other unions at the time, a substantial number of uh, full-time organisers who would travel across the different stations, which, you know, was pretty essential considering that they're often quite spread out and everything to keep people connected to the union and the struggles that were happening. And they also used the um, newspapers of the Shearers unions as well, which are really important in conveying a sense that we're all part of this uh, movement, you know, across different colonial state lines through a part of this common struggle together, you know, debating out different economic and political issues that would come up. I, th- I think it's important to say that, like, the leadership of the union were, you know, in no sense, like, super radical, you know, militants. Um, most of them would emphasise very much that they, you know, were not necessarily for strikes at the time. They want to negotiate. They're not for getting rid of all of capitalism, whatever. Most weren't, you know, even nominally kind of socialists. And a few that were, were you know, pretty kind of moderate, kind of Labour Party style kind of politics. Um, but as the union grew and spread, it had to organise strikes at first on a local basis in order to compel bosses to the negotiating table. There was no real way around that. And as the union recruited thousands and then tens of thousands of workers, they you know, their left currents started to develop within the union as well, particularly in the Western District, um, in New South Wales and other states, which was particularly militant and was much more kind of proletarianised, much more itinerant. Um, a lot of workers who you know, were more combative and stuff in those areas and they produced a lot of kind of more left-wing leaders who were willing to you know, go and strike more often and put more pressure upon um, the leaders of their union. Mm. And as they did this, um, the bosses, you know, didn't sit around doing nothing. They started to form their own unions, um, pastoralist associations and stuff to combat the rise of the unions. And so that also started to make the struggle Less is about localised battles and more a generalised struggle across, you know, the whole continent between um, the workers on one side and the pastoralists on the other. Yep, so the scale of it, I mean, thinking about the challenges of organising workers at, at that time as well in terms of communication and coordination of activities across the whole country when people are also moving around. Like you said, you know, the way that people complain about how hard it is to organise things today and you've got instant ways of communicating with people and all of that stuff. So so right at the beginning you said that these were, you know, tumultuous kind of momentous um, struggles and it, like, and it went on for a decade. What were some of the high points? Like, what, So we get a sense of the, the scale of these events. Yeah, they're absolutely enormous. <laughs> um, and it's saying which is not much in popular consciousness these days, I suppose. But tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of workers were involved throughout that decade period in huge strikes. So it kind of really kicks off with the 1890 Maritime Strike, which shearers are also involved in. And then there's another big strike in 1891, which is the shearers strike then, um, which really reaches a high point when a strike camp in Queensland 
uh, fly the Eureka flag, which is seen as, <laughs> um, you know, by the colonial elite as a declaration of civil war against the government. Um, and they mobilise over a thousand military personnel to go in and break up the strike, arrest the leaders and charge them with sedition. And there's even talk about arresting Henry Lawson <laughs> for a poem he writes um, supporting the strike camp at the time. And then in 1894, which is the next big strike, um, it's even larger and more violent and confrontational than 1891 and kind of most famously is associated with the burning of the Rodney, which was a, a steamship that had scab labour on it. Um, but there's a whole series of instances of you know, very violent clashes between strikers and police, of strikers who try and um, shoot <laughs> um, scabs and police officers with rifles and whatnot. Um, so it's, yeah, a very tumultuous time. And that has often been downplayed because um, a kind of mythology got built up after the strike, particularly by historians who are, you know, associated and supporters of the project of the Australian Labor Party, who try to argue that while it was very heroic what they did, it was all kind of futile. And then the workers realised how futile it was and they formed the Australian Labor Party to, you know, solve all their problems through the peaceful means of parliament. But that often ends up downplaying what a radical period this was. Um, and at the time, both people on the left and the right argue that it was a revolutionary period. So they, you know, talking before about the flying Eureka flag in Queensland was interpreted as you know, an act almost of insurrection. Um, I was reading Ernie Lane, who's William Lane's brother, who was an early socialist and trade union leader in his autobiography. The chapter about the 1890s is called A Revolutionary Period. Um, and he talks about how there's a real sense in society that, like, things can't go on this way, that the whole dream of Australia being this radically different society to the class-ridden, you know, European um, aristocratic societies had just fallen apart, that there was a real sense that something radical needed to be transformed and a growth of, you know, socialist ideas from America and, and England in the time which flowed through into Australia and the radicalisation of, you know, an important section of the working class. So in that context, then, if we go to the question of Aboriginal workers, I wanted to start with this figure that you um, mentioned at the beginning of your article, Andrew Stewart Stepney, who was known as Black Andy at the time, um, who was one of the key leaders of the Shearer's strikes and a rebel and a radical. Um and this story is pretty—it's pretty captivating story, I think. And you write it really well. So, can you tell us a bit about him to start with? Yeah, definitely. Stepney is like a really interesting character, and was one of the early kind of uh, figures that I found out about when I was researching. So, he was a strike leader in 1894 in Cobar, um, where there was a lot of confrontations because the bosses brought in a lot of scabs by the trains to go to the shearing sheds. And Andy was the representative of the, the local strike camp um, in Cobar. Um, and he was a part of a whole uh, kind of layer of, you know, radical trade unionists, many of whom um, were not white, which is what is usually um, presupposed. So just to give an idea, I'll read out this description that was printed in one of the newspapers of the strike camp that, he was involved in. Um, so it says, Black Andy is a representative of the Union camp 26 miles from Cobar. 
a man named Russell, who is a half-caste Maori, is the chairman of the camp committee. And for some time, a New Zealand shearer born in Germany acted as a secretary with an assistant hailing from Ireland. One of the Rastabouts on strike is a German father, a French mother, and was born in damn Chicago. And this is, you know, some racist who's written in this letter complaining about the situation, but gives a very different picture mm. of what, you know, these strike camps are like compared to what is usually in the historic record. Um, and Andy uh, continued to play a role, not just in Cobar, but a few weeks later, he was a thousand miles away in Queensland leading the strike at Bowen Downs, which was one of the big pastoralist stations there. And this led to a huge racist backlash against him. There were um, poems that were republished in dozens of kind of conservative newspapers at the time, basically mocking him and mocking the white workers for being led by a black man, saying, you know, oh, this shows how desperate the strikers are. They've lowered themselves to this. Um, and in response to this, Andy wrote uh, a reply, which was published in the union newspaper, which explains that because um, people thought they was African-American was kind of how the media talked about it. They explained that he was an African-American. In fact, on his mother's side, he was Aboriginal and his father was an African from the African continent who was a sailor who had come to Australia um, and met his mother at the time. Um, and the newspaper pointed out that he had been a member of the Shearer's Union since 1886 and had played a role in several strikes, including in 1890 um, in Hayes. And so he had this, yeah, real um, reputation, sorry, for being a strike leader, for being a prominent uh, member of the Shearer's Union and playing a role all across the country in, you know, galvanising workers around their struggles. Mm. And that's kind of interesting because there are debates that you um, reference in the piece about the role of Aboriginal workers more generally in the union, and there's quite a range of different historical, I mean, it would be generous to call them interpretations of the evidence because it's pretty hard when you look at the evidence that you've found to say that Aboriginal people didn't play a role, but some people have concluded that or they've just not mentioned it. How much evidence is there then to suggest that what you're saying is true, that they, they played a pretty important role here? Yeah, there's a huge amount of evidence in favour of um, my argument. So, you know, Andrew Stepney is kind of a prominent example, but there's many more, which I'll go on to talk about. Um, but it really rebuts, yeah, the commonplace argument, which has different forms. So some people say kind of the most silly thing, really, which is that there were no Aboriginal shearers. Uh, Sydney Uni PhD in 2009 argued that based on no evidence whatsoever. Or people say, oh, maybe they were some shearers, but they weren't in the union. And then mm -hmm. others admit, oh, maybe they were in the union, but they didn't play any real role. Um, so another um, academic that um, I read his thesis of argued that they only showed paternal contempt towards the Aboriginal members of the union. And often this is based on the fact that they definitely were racist restrictions in the union against a whole series of other workers, particularly mm -hmm. uh, Chinese workers and others, um, and people are just kind of presumed that this must have applied to Aboriginal workers, or even if it didn't, it must have, you know, continued to lead them to have extremely racist views about them. Um, but there's a very different um, history here, which I think is really important. Mm. It also touches on, I mean, that, that issue of the racist restrictions inside the union, even that is often painted as though it means that everyone, every member of the union was racist. 
And Jordan mentioned earlier that, you know, there'd been this kind of emergence of a left, you know, an increasingly kind of radicalized left within the union. One of the things that marked out that left wasn't just their, you know, uh, their determination to build, uh, you know, rank and file organization and, and around serious strike action and so on, uh, but was also in open defiance of the, of the racist bans, you know. So there's at least one report of a whole branch of that ASU that was led by uh, particular militants who openly defied uh, the anti-Chinese ban and said Chinese members are welcome in our branch. Um, you know, so these things are, these things are kind of on the record, but again, they're never really probed. You know, it's just kind of taken for granted that, oh yeah, there's this racist history inside the union and therefore they were all racist. And on the other side too, my own research around uh, Chinese workers in Australia and their own radical history also has uh, demonstrated like, you know, effusive attempts at solidarity with the Shearer's strikes um, from Chinese workers, particularly in the cabinet making trade here in Melbourne, um, you know, who, who, uh, this one's quite famous actually, uh, you know, who, who donated money to support the striking, striking shearers and trades hall in Melbourne actually accepted that money originally. And it was the, the white furniture union that compelled trades hall to return it. That one's kind of a famous well-known example. But, uh, another thing that, that I uncovered myself was about Chinese wharfies in Queensland, uh, during the strike who refused to unload a scab ship. Uh, you know, a ship that had wool that had been um, sheared by scab, scab, scab shearers um, refused to do it. And it was the the local bishop who came in and led the scabs to unload that uh, scab, <laughs> scab wool. So, yeah, a lot of this stuff, you know, this history uh, about it's kind of just taken for granted. Yeah, that the racist move, the workers' movement was racist, you know, full stop. But all of the struggles against it from both sides uh, 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 is kind of ignored. Hmm. I think there's a couple of reasons for that, both of which are political. One is that history is interpreted from the top down. So you start, a lot of people start with what is the official evidence? What were politicians saying about it? What was the leadership? What was the policy written on paper? Okay, well, that sets the scene and then everything else sort of, you know, is evidence that seems strangely to contradict it, but it's a, an exception or something. Yeah. But that was the policy, so that was the policy. Yeah. And secondly, I think in this instance, in the context of, the politics of, um, you know, white privilege, particularly today, that people want to look at this history and say, well, white workers are privileged and so therefore they would have no interest in doing anything other than being racist. And so any examples that go against that kind of get brushed aside or say, oh, well, that, that doesn't really count. <laughs> it's kind of like when there's so much evidence um of that kind of solidarity in a time when the context is so much more racist generally from the top of society, mm. it just makes it even more uh, important to kind of uncover the real history from the bottom up, kind of genuine labour history, which is so rare at mm. this point in time. And I wanted to go to a, a quote um, that you use from uh, The Worker, which is one of the newspapers you were talking about that was printed in Brisbane, uh, from um, you know a white worker's perspective around kind of how do you understand colonization because <laughs> I think uh, like it's really quite beautifully written in, in many ways and it goes to saying that you know they understand that there is a class division and that's the most important division and so in the worker uh, this person has written. Um, I've yet to learn, don't you know, that the immortal British Empire or any other speck of 
country owned by sheer right divine all the land it, it can get its clutches, clutches on. There's no more natural sense in a bleary-eyed officer with gold lace and a taste for rum sticking a few feet of stick with a few square inches of painted calico attached into the ground and saying, I annex this era country, than there is in you or me taking a trip across Europe and going through the same pantomime at Brighton or Monte Carlo. You or I got the exactly the same right as the gold-laced gentleman who appreciates rum, <laughs> getting a good picture of the colonizers. <laughs> The only thing is that he has a title deed in the shape of a few thousand tons of men of war with guns enough to blow the unfortunate natives to little small bits if they object. Wonderful justice, isn't it? The Aboriginals had more right to be in Australia than we had looking at things justly. So, I mean, from that, like, is that how general is that perspective from white workers or how would you position that? compared to other historical accounts, Jordan? Yeah, well, it was a really widespread idea uh, at the time amongst the Shearer's Union's elite. So other articles made very much the same point. So there's one which says, In the long ago, a Christian nation crossed the seas and took from a happy race who had never wronged them their country, out of which they then made many millions of pounds. And there's constant talk about yeah, the effects of the invasion upon the Aboriginal people, how it had no moral or legal justification, and that it continued beyond just, you know, 1788. So there's many articles about ongoing massacres, about the history of massacres. Um, there was an article, for instance, about the mass killing of Aboriginal people in Queensland, which prompted one of the editors of the worker to, in his words, remember in bygone years, men having the mission to disperse Aboriginals for the convenience of white settlers, or in plain English, a license to shoot, kill, or frighten away from the path of the white man, the people who are actually the lawful owners of the soil. Um, and he even said that he knew a white settler had a rifle which had notches in it for each Aboriginal person he had killed, and he said they should use that in the inquiry into um, the ongoing conditions of Aboriginal people. So, yeah, it was definitely a quite widespread thing at the time within the Shearer's Unions that they yeah, the invasion was very immoral, that it had totally disadvantaged Aboriginal people, that had not led to them, you know, having all these great advantages from civilization, like, you know, Tony Abbott talked about a few years ago, but instead had um, produced a situation on, of ongoing injustice. And that was also clear at the um, 1891 um, ASU conference of the Shearer's Union, where there was a bit of a debate about whether special measures should be introduced to make it easier for Aboriginal people to join the union, um, the measure being that they should um, not have to pay union um, dues as long as they agree to the other union rules. And there was a debate about this. Some people opposed it, some supported it, but everyone had the same perspective, which was obviously they have been disadvantaged by the situation that European colonisation has produced in Australia and shearers should be you know, sympathetic to that situation. Mm. So they were all much better than anyone, any commentator you'd ever see on Sky News right now, for example. <laughs> exactly. No, that, that's true. Andrew Bolt still denies, you know, that Aboriginal people in Australia have any disadvantage that needs to be rectified. Um, and so if there were these debates in this left current that you and Liam both talked about, what kind of actions were taken in, in support of Aboriginal workers? Were there... Uh, sort of solidarity actions or practical things like that membership debate, what actually 
kind of came off in support of Aboriginal workers. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's a situation that, you know, has arisen throughout the history of the labour movement where you have a certain section of the workforce who are, you know, racially oppressed and exploited. And there's kind of two options that unions have, I guess. You know, one is to say, well, that's really unfortunate and it's, you know, undermining our wages and conditions. So those workers should be excluded from the workforce and driven out in order to protect the rest of the workforce. Or you can argue we should demand that they get paid the same in order to stop um, bosses from trying to use those workers to undermine broader conditions um, of the working class and unionization. And it's yeah really important to say that the Shearer's Union almost always took the second option, which was to demand that Aboriginal workers get paid the same. And there's many examples of this, um, part of which goes back to the fact that Aboriginal workers were involved in the union from very early on. So one of the stories I talk about in the article is about this guy, Tommy, who was an Aboriginal shearer who was paid to set up the first union meeting in Wagga, um, which established the shearer's union there. Um, So they're involved from the very beginning. And and Stepney, as I said before, was involved from the very first year of the union um, being formed itself. Um, But some concrete examples how they took up kind of supporting Aboriginal workers when they're exploited um, was in Queensland in 1892, where there were a series of situations where Aboriginal workers are being exploited. So there's one example where some white shearers are just, you know, walking on their way to the pub and they come across some Aboriginal workers having a dispute with their boss. And they walk over and say, oh, what's going on? And the Aboriginal workers say they're being ripped off and that the boss is, you know, manipulating the calculations in his book to try and underpay them. And the boss is like, no, 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 I'm paying them the right amount. And then the white shearers demand to see his book, to see the calculations. And then he says, oh, no, I I made a mistake. Yeah, (laughs) they actually are getting paid this amount. (laughs) Um, So there's many accounts of that where they just intercede. And then the other accounts as well of Aboriginal workers um, going on strike. Um, So there's an example in Queensland from uh, tobacco, um, it's not a factory exactly, but a little tobacco workshop where there's 50 Aboriginal workers there. And they talked to the local um, Shearer's Union officials about whether they would support them going on strike. And when they do, they support them and they publish a report in in the worker about the strike and and argue that workers should show sympathy and support towards them. And that's something which is not only in the Shearer's Union itself, actually. I've just been doing a bit of research about Darwin and there's an example in 1891 there of... um, workers in the pearling industry who are Aboriginal workers who uh, went on uh, strike to demand uh, better paying conditions because they're being underpaid compared to other workers. And the kind of mainstream news article makes the point that these workers a few months before had been working on ships with white unionised workers at the time and that they think they've obviously picked up the idea from these um, other workers as well. So there's a real interplay between both the Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal workers about unions, about the right to strike, about taking on this economic exploitation, you know, which is the interest of everyone to do so. I guess that brings us to kind of why there was such different um, perspectives from these workers in organised unions and who were in the midst of um, struggle and, and a class struggle um, form, that 
in such an extremely racist society, you know, I think a lot of people would find it hard to explain, which is why it gets brushed aside. It's like, oh, I don't want to have to try to explain that because it leads to some bigger questions that maybe you have a different perspective on or you're not sure about or you think that there's a different solution overall, you know, to this, to the question of exploitation and racial oppression. So how do you explain it? And obviously this is a revolutionary socialist podcast, so it's useful to kind of go back to basics here, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think the first reason is that they face a common enemy. I think that's really important to say. So, you know, who was exploiting the Aboriginal workers and the shearers? It was the pastoralists and it was the police. The pastoralists were obviously hated by the union for obvious reason. They were the bosses they were striking and organising against. But the police were also really despised. Like, even before the 1890s strikes, there was a widespread idea that the police were, you know, corrupt, drunk, kind of petty authoritarians. You know, that's why there was a lot of sympathy towards bushrangers and other people who stood up to them or, you know, the Eureka Stockade against the police there. But throughout the 1890s, that became even more intense and hard because the police, you know, were sent in to break up the strike camps, to defend the scabs and so forth. So we're just seen as, you know, the servants of the rich and powerful. Um, and these same forces were also the ones, you know, kicking Aboriginal people off their land and exploiting and harassing them. So there are a whole series of articles in the Shearer's Union newspapers about this. There's one example where there's like a... Um, a prison where some Aboriginal people are sent to, but then when the local squatters come up who employ those Aboriginal people, the police let them out to go and work in their thing, and then as soon as their shifts ended, they send them back to jail again. <laughs> um, so a total, you know, corrupt kind of uh, relationship between those two forces. And there's also articles about, uh, there's one, for instance, about the role of the police in uh, killing Aboriginal people. And it's kind of a review of a recent book that came out at the time, and the review ends by saying, we should all remember that these same police were those used against us in the Shearer's strikes of the 1890s. And so there's a real kind of connection here um, between the two. Another aspect of that common enemy thing is that, you know, there were other people in Australian society who sympathised with Aboriginal people. There were kind of libertarian, sorry, liberal humanitarians and clergy and others. Generally, the Shearer's were pretty... Um, sceptical when they said things supporting Aboriginal people. So there's one example where this guy, Hugh Nelson, who was the Premier of Queensland, who, the former Premier at the time, and he made this kind of speech about how, oh, it's really sad that Aboriginal people are so exploited over their land. And the Shearer's newspaper wrote an article about this saying that this was mortal and rubbish, in their words, because as they pointed out, Hugh Nelson helped to give the land you know, 70% of the land to 10% of the population. So for him to now say, oh, it's really sad what happened to them is pretty ridiculous. Um, and another Shearer at the 1891 conference I talked about before made the point that at the end of the day, it was the capitalists who took the land from the Aboriginal people, not the Shearers, most of whom had no land at all or a very small amount of it. Um, so that was one of the big reasons was that um, common enemy. There's some more reasons as well, which I can go on to if you want, Ross. <laughs> Yeah, I think it would be useful, yeah. Well, the other, this kind of the second main reason was the particular role that Aboriginal workers played within the workforce, I guess, and some of the contradictions of that. So, um, you know, the basis of a lot of the racist hostility to various different migrant groups was often couched in this idea that like, oh, we're not 
against them per se, but they should go back to their country and, you know, and get their rights there or whatever. They shouldn't be here. You can really say that about Aboriginal people because obviously this is their country. So there's kind of a contradiction there where they're not white, but they're also not alien labour in the terminology of the time. And then Aboriginal workers were also not this huge section of the workforce, uh, you know, a minority within it. So it was difficult for bosses to whip up this whole, you know, scare campaign that there's this huge war, they're going to come in and, and steal your jobs or whatever. There simply weren't enough Aboriginal people for that to really happen. Um, and on top of that, there was a real sense in the shearing industry of like sometimes competitive, but also collective idea that you proved how good you were as a worker in practice within the shearing shed. So there's lots of reports by workers saying things like, oh, you know, I didn't used to think that much about Aboriginal people, but then I was in a shed shearing of them and they were just as good, if not better than I was. So, you know, they're a part of the same, you know, class as we are, that kind of thing. So those different ideas you know, broke down a bunch of the, you know, the racism which undoubtedly existed in Australian society at the time. And then I guess the last reason is just a, like, really human reason, which is that Aboriginal people were really exploited and oppressed and treated terribly, and people saw this and they could see what was going on. So there's one letter I quote in the article from this guy, William Bell, who's a shearer from New South Wales that goes over to Western Australia to be a part of the gold rush and he gets there and there's no gold. So he's pretty disappointed about the whole situation. Um, but then he writes a letter saying, this is just a hellscape, this society. And he writes that there's, there's hundreds of Aboriginal people who are leg ironed and marched around naked by the police or abused by them. He says he heard stories about Aboriginal um, young girls being sold off um, to, uh, to rich whites to be abused in their cattle stations that there's a place called Rot Nest he talks about where it's just, he says everyone is afraid of this place and it distracts terror in the population. And he writes, like, this is, you know, this is just like the American South or something. This is not what, you know, a so-called advanced democratic society is supposed to be like to have this kind of society in place. So they were, I think, generally horrified by what was going on. Um, but their response to that was different to kind of the middle-class humanitarian view because it wasn't just sympathy but that was combined with a, a class instinct rooted in the idea of, you know, the labor movement and fighting against exploitation um, and oppression. And because the sharing strikes really sharply divided rural Australian society into opponents or supporters of the Shearers Union, this also did shape race relations as well. Like you could be the whitest white Australian worker of all time, but if you didn't support the union, then the shearers thought that you were a moron or a traitor. Um, whereas if you're an Aboriginal worker who you know, had no, you know, no white ancestry whatsoever, if you supported the union, then whatever other ideas they might have about you, you're considered a part of the movement for the emancipation of labour. And so I think it really confirms that basic argument that Marxists make about class. And I think about solidarity and that in that example before when you said, you know, the white workers on their way to the pub and they come across um, some Aboriginal workers arguing with the boss. It's like the reason they offer solidarity at that point is because the Aboriginal people are already having a fight about it and that's the same in terms of this history that we're uncovering here about the role of Aboriginal workers within these strikes, as leaders of these strikes, as militant workers, as people who were fighting back all of the time in the most, you know, uh, horrendous hellscape conditions that you describe as well so it's not just 
it's not the same as a middle-class kind of white guilt sympathy response. It's solidarity and it's class-based. And it's a part of history that I guess people can look at and think, well, you know, it's inter- some nice stories, interesting and everything, but that's the 1890s. Life is a lot different in Australia today. Uh, you know, are these lessons still relevant? What's the relevance of it? Why are we putting this in a, in a socialist journal in 2021? Yeah, I think it's very relevant um, for kind of two reasons. So the first is like more a narrow historical one, I suppose, and the other one is a broader political one. So in terms of like some of the debates about kind of the labor movement and racism in history, I think it's really useful counterexample to some of the traditions we're talking about before where people just want to totally downplay any idea of solidarity between um, workers from you know different backgrounds. And it also fills in a bit of a gap in the historical record, actually, where people might know or might have heard about in the 1920s, particularly in the 1930s, there are a number of working class um, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal activists who get together and do a whole series of important good works. So William Ferguson, who's one of the um, major organisers of the day of mourning protest in 1938, is an example, and it's relatively well known that he was a member of the AWU and was involved in rural workers organising earlier in his life. Um, But this shows that he was not some random kind of anomaly of history or whatever. Actually, there was a lot of Aboriginal workers who were a part of that tradition. And also that there was a, on the kind of other side, a tradition of white workers who were involved in those struggles and that had a huge impact upon them. So a couple couple of examples are there's this guy, Mark Davidson, who is a Labor left um, MP during the 30s who really pushes for an inquiry into the abuses of the Aborigines Protection Board. And when he's asked, um, why are you doing this? Like the rest of the Labour Party are not interested in this. You're going to get disciplined about it. He says, oh, I was a shearer in the 1890s and I had this experience with these Aboriginal workers. And similarly, um, two members of the Communist Party in the 30s who really take up Aboriginal issues are Tom Wright, who becomes leader of the, the Sheet Metal Workers Union, and a guy called Norman Jeffries, who's a organizer of agricultural workers um, and both of them also say that in the 1890s in the kind of early period 1890s and early 1900s they were involved in um, rural battles alongside aboriginal workers and had a huge impact upon them so i think it kind of ties together some of that later history of some of this early history as well and is a kind of missing link in that which i think is important mm. but then more oh sorry uh, more broadly politically um i think it's uh, really important because it does undermine what is a really prominent idea on the left in Australia in the moment, which is that, you know, white workers are really privileged. They got these benefits. They could never support Aboriginal people because, you know, they live on the land that was stolen, um, that they're colonisers, which is a term which is used um, pretty loosely these days. Um, but this shows that in the 1890s, when there was a lot more explicit racism and segregation laws in Australia today, all these workers who are able to overcome that racism and show solidarity with Aboriginal workers. And, you know, they, it's not like all their ideas were perfectly correct and it was relatively underdeveloped and uneven, all sorts of things, most definitely. But it shows that definitely is possible. And if it was possible then, why is it not possible today when, you know, there's a much more widespread understanding about Aboriginal issues and the history of oppression and exploitation? Mm. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Um, oh, so thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of that. And I'll 
Liam, Liam wants to say something. You can see me smiling. Okay. There is one thing. Um, in terms of why it's still relevant, I, I don't know how to work this into the conversation without sounding like, oh, look at me. But uh, if you ever come across in your research, Jordan, a guy by the name of Tom Ward in the Riverina, in the Riverina District, one of the striking shearers, that's my great granddad. So in terms of how it's relevant uh, to today, uh, in <laughs> no, my family, like the oral history of my family, um, the fact that, that old Tom was one of the striking shearers and was a self-avowed, you know, radical socialist, uh, that certainly was a big part of my upbringing and is no small factor in the ingredient that, you know, brings me to today where I'm, you know, co-producing a revolutionary socialist podcast. So, yeah, I mean, there can be those kind of historian, historical legacies too. That's really nice, Liam. Yeah, actually, um, Mick Armstrong, we were talking about earlier, was telling me that his, I think it was his granddad, was involved in the Shearer's strikes as well. Oh, yeah. told, told this rather hilarious story about how during the 1894 strike, um, him and his friends grabbed a scab and, you know, threw them to the ground and spent a while spitting in their mouth in them <laughs> <laughs> to humiliate them for their crimes. Delightful Mick Armstrong Indeed. It does, um, the point about uh, uh, Tom Ward, though, it does make the point about how conscious intervention is important in these circumstances as well, that it's mm-hmm. not just an automatic process by which workers you know, overcome, you know, racist divisions and work together. So the thing about, you know, left-wing socialists having influence within the um, Shearer's Union, I think, is important. So one little example of that is the Burke branch of the union, which was noted for its radicalism, was one which really pushed support for Aboriginal rights in a lot of the conferences. And they're also the branch which was more sympathetic to Chinese workers as well. So you can see how some of these issues start to, you know, interact. That's the branch I was referring to earlier, the work branch. Yeah, Yeah, we could have a whole other episode. Maybe we'll have you back to talk about the role of radical socialists in in a whole bunch of these unions in this period of um, upheaval because I reckon that would be good and worth a whole other discussion. So Mm -hmm. thank you, Liam, ancestor of... Famous Shearer striker. <laughs> Probably could be related to me too. You know, so could be. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know if he's famous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's yeah. just he was just one of the striking Shearers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's famous now. He's famous in my family, and he's now yeah now the subject of a red totally. flag. Totally. Uh, listeners, yeah. Um, so Jordan, we'll put the link to uh, Marxist Left Review, and highly recommend that people subscribe to the journal, which means that as soon as the latest edition comes out, you get it mailed to you in mm-hmm. old school form. Um, and you get to read it in print, and you get to see articles that are not posted on the website, but there is still a bunch of free stuff you can access online too. So thank you for being here. No worries. And thank you to Liam. And if you've enjoyed this episode and you think someone else might be interested in it too, please do uh, share it around. Um, Red Flag Radio is always free to listen, no ads, no bullshit. revolutionary socialist politics so this is red flag radio and we have a world to win <laughs>